Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. And a very warm welcome back to Solidarity Breakfast. A left response to the major developments in capitalism. What they trade in is not wheat. They trade in famine. A little dose of revolutionary optimism. I think it's really important to sort of express solidarity globally. It really is a deal by corporations for corporations. The union forever defending our rights down with the black leg. If you think the ABC's left wing, don't listen to this program. Solidarity Breakfast, 7.30 to 9am Saturdays, 3CR, 8.55am streaming and 3CR digital, podcast or audio on demand. And of course, the website, solidaritybreakfast.org.au. Solidarity forever! Good morning, everybody. Good morning. That's right, we're here. I hope you're here too. (laughs) This is Solidarity Breakfast. (laughs) I think some people are probably, well, definitely still in bed and uh, listening. Yeah, Yeah. that's right. And of course, there's always podcasts because 3CR has got a whole system backing up all us producers on, on the mic. And hopefully you listeners are supporting us by subscribing. Yes. We've got an interesting program today, I think, uh, if I should say so myself. I went down to the uh, new international bookshop to quite a few talks this week. They've got quite an array of events. And uh, the one that I um, am going to uh, uh, broadcast today is this one by Anthony Skews. Anthony Skews has written this book called Politics for the New Dark Age, Staying positive amidst disorder. Uh, yeah, I read it. I read the title. <laughs> I read the title when I was sitting there, and I, I yeah. went, "Yeah, yeah." This is a new, uh, a dark age. But what? It's actually quite interesting because his perspective is uh, one of. Um, I mean, he he's in his thirties, early thirties, I guess, oh. and uh, he's written a book based on the notion that uh, people of his ilk have all been. In your ilk, yeah. <laughs> have uh, been brought up in a period of history that has been completely encapsulated by neoliberalism. Yes, that's true. Yeah. yeah. And as a response to this, as a person who, uh, uh, with his fellows, who feel that uh, things aren't actually, we're on a shaky boat mm. and they're not actually happy with all these explanations but that are given. we keep getting told to be positive. Yes. <laughs> and it's the only way, you know, that neoliberalism is the only answer because that's how the education system's completely infused with yeah. it, this ideological approach. And so he decided that he was going to sit down and record his own views of this. And because he's got an analytical uh, turn of mind and this was part of a... As he says in his talk, he's just come back from spending all this time in Geneva uh, doing a whole lot of uh, computer modelling. And he comes up with some really, really fascinating um, things that I already knew. Which yeah, is but he's like proving them through modelling. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's which cool. is really, really neat. Yeah. So anyway, let's, let's hear what um, he's got to say. For me, socialism as a trans-historical, trans-cultural um, phenomenon 
has basically three core definitional elements. Uh, the first of those elements is that human beings are a social species, that we have evolved to live, work, and socialize in groups, and essentially that is a biological reality. In social sciences, in political science, and in economics in particular, there is this talk of individuals as self-interested, utility-maximizing, rational actors, yada, yada, yada. And in economics, there's increasingly a field uh, of behavioral economics which supposes to explain how and under what circumstances human beings deviate from that ideal behavior. Rather than seeing the way that we cooperate in groups as a deviation from an ideal norm, socialists fundamentally should recognize that you know, that ideal of individual behavior, of, of selfish utility maximization, just isn't what we are as individuals and not what we are as a species. The second sort of key point of what socialism is, is that social life consists of a series of social dilemmas. That we are a social species, that we live together in groups, but the core problem of politics is how a group of individuals work and live together and make decisions about the collective good in a way that doesn't lead to the mutual uh, destruction of everybody. So again, on the right, um, I'm sure people are familiar with the idea of the tragedy of the commons, right? Uh, and this, this is sort of the foundational myth of sort of the right-wing narrative, and that is that people are simply incapable of efficiently organising themselves into a society, that the only way that um, they can govern themselves is through self-help and everybody looking out for their own interests and dividing up what is common into what is private property, essentially. The socialist perspective is that, yes, you know, these social dilemmas are real. You know, we can point them out. I've just finished my time in Geneva doing a great deal of game theory and sort of modelling all this stuff. But it actually turns out that tragedy of the common self-help idea is actually incorrect. That even formal mathematical game theory um, senses that there are cooperative solutions to many of these social dilemmas and that, and then this is kind of the third point, is that often those cooperative uh, approaches to pro social problem solving, where we trust one another, where we are honest with one another, where we support egalitarian outcomes, are superior in terms of the outcomes that they deliver, they are, if you're inclined to discuss things normatively, then they are normatively superior solutions. Uh, and so those are the three elements for me, that we're social species, that social life is characterised by social dilemmas, and that there are cooperative solutions to those um, social dilemmas which are superior in sort of every, any, any sense you can count. My take is a democratic socialist one. Uh, it is one that sort of sees socialism as an embodiment or an improvement upon the, the liberal uh, tradition rather than a rejection of it. So I define and sort of think generally of, of socialism as liberalism plus structural critique, right? We, we take on board the sort of the core philosophical assumptions of, of Locke and Rawls and all these people, but we say the individualizing perspective that is in, embedded in that approach isn't sufficient to solve these social dilemmas and we actually need to think about populations structurally and cooperatively in order to get to where we want to go. So the book itself spends several of the early chapters sort of running through the basics of a liberal social contract approach, particularly in the context of Australia where we don't have a fundamental bill of rights and our democratic institutions operate more on the basis of customs and norms than anything else. 
that it's really important for the left in general to really commit to some of those liberal principles quite strongly because uh, as we can see all around us, the right and even the centre absolutely do not. Three sort of core elements of, of liberalism that I borrow and, I, and, I, and I, that I think are important for socialists to uphold. The first thing is the idea of the universal social contract. One of the sort of the core components of, of liberalism is that it is a universal tradition that we do not think of ourselves as workers and capitalists that are locked in an antagonistic struggle against one another, but rather we are united as human individuals, as members of a, of a universal society. And this is where the sort of intersectional approach and the approach of looking at the, the rights of minorities is of particular useful, uh, particular, particular use. Because I think the fundamental object of any progressive movement should be to ensure that every member of society is treated to the full and equal dignity under the social contract um, that they're entitled to. And I think the core area, um, and I talk about this in the book, one of the core areas where um, Australia is very much not upholding this is in the area of Indigenous rights. Um, I think if you look over the last 20 years of Australian policy, if not the last 200 years, or especially over the last 200 years, um, we have not seen the traditional inhabitants of this continent as full and equal members of the Australian social contract. Um, that we have... Uh, in many cases, treated them with an extreme degree of paternalism uh, and uh, essentially not recognised their voice um, as, uh, as equal citizens. And so, you know, I think we can talk about redistribution, we can talk about um, inequality, we can talk about all these high-level economic issues, but if there are people in your society that are not treated with the full and equal dignity that they deserve as full citizens of your country then that's the problem that you need to solve first. Uh, the second sort of core liberal commitment is the embrace of radical democracy. And this is to say not only is every citizen of your society entitled to equal dignity and equal respect, but also that we trust that they are best able to make decisions um, that affect their own lives. At an earlier stage of drafting this book, uh, the, the, its working title was actually The Anti-Utilitarian. Um, because I think one of the greatest and, and uh, most pernicious aspects of the neoliberal moment uh, as practiced in the 1990s and the early 2000s was this idea that there was an expert or elite class that had the best idea of how to run society, that they could measure you know, the optimal happiness of everybody involved and weigh up the various interests of all different, uh, all different cl social classes and then come up with a policy solution that was in the best interest of everybody. The argument that I make in the book is that the, the neoliberal, the utilitarian, whatever you want to call it, perspective is fundamentally an authoritarian one in that if you are saying, I know what is in the best interest of someone else, you are not a Democrat. Um, you're an authoritarian. Um, and um, what socialists should really work to recognise uh, is that radical democracy is our ground work. You know, we, we believe that individuals uh, are able to make decisions both individually and collectively to manage their own affairs, to do so efficiently, and to do so in a way that suits our own interests. 
And the third and final thing that I think we should borrow from the sort of the liberal tradition is a Universal Bill of Rights. Again, if this was a book that was being written about British politics or, or, even, or American politics, this would be a different argument. But the fact of the matter remains that Australia is one of the very few liberal democracies that lacks a fundamental Bill of Rights um, and that many of the government policies that many people in this room uh, will have objected to over the last you know, couple of decades including the treatment of asylum seekers, including um, laws around privacy and encryption, uh, simply could not have been passed in most other Western countries because those countries have a robust Bill of Rights and judicial protection of those rights. Um, so in addition to sort of that, that civil and political picture, I think it's also important that we have a robust list of, of economic and social rights that we're committed to. One of the principles that I borrow in the book from international law and apply to the economic space is this idea called the welfare principle. It's a theory about the role of government and what the government um, should do in terms of respecting individual rights. The idea being that if you have a list of economic, social, cultural, political, um, civil rights, you know, can individuals, through their own efforts, acting alone as individual utility-maximising rational actors, can individuals satisfy those rights on their own, right? And the answer is clearly not. Like, let's take as a very basic example the right to life. You know, unless everybody is carrying around AK <laughs> at all times, um, if the government didn't outlaw murder, you know, you would not be protected, you know, against someone shooting you or hitting you with an axe or whatever. Society creates laws and societies create governments in order to guarantee those rights that you can't secure through your own efforts. And just as we apply those principles in the civil and political space, we should also apply those rights in the economic space. So that if you, cannot, if you do not earn a sufficient wage to pay rent and you're homeless, or if you don't have a wage at all, if you cannot pay your health insurance premiums, that is a market failure, right? you cannot achieve through self-help a right that we expect to deliver as a, to you in, in, in terms of having equal dignity as a member of a, a liberal society. And so there is a prima facie case for government action to guarantee all of those rights through direct action. And so one of the areas in which I apply this in particular in the book is, is the distinction between a universal basic income and a guaranteed minimum income. UBIs are very trendy at the moment, but they're actually very dangerous for the left, and the reason is because they're based on a false philosophical premise. They're based on the idea that true equality is the government giving everybody the same amount of money. Under a democratic socialist or a liberal socialist perspective, you are equal in rights and you are equal in dignity. You're not equal in terms of your entitlement from the government, in that people who have greater need who have the inability or the incapacity to secure the rights to their own self-help, they have a claim on the rest of society, they have a claim on the government in order to equalise their satisfaction of their rights with everybody else. And the argument that I make in the book is that our failure as a society to guarantee housing to everybody, to guarantee education to everybody, to guarantee healthcare and a living wage and a, you know, a meaningful income to every citizen is actually, in, in, in point of fact, a, a denial of their equality as citizens under the social contract. That in a sense that if you are not guaranteeing someone their equal rights, 
in, in most important respects, you're not treating them as, as, a, as a fellow citizen. In sort of the second half of the book, I sort of go into the inequality space. Why, why critiquing the structure of society matters um, because there are a lot of different ways that we can meet individual rights. And in fact, one of the arguments that the right will make is that they'll say, yes, of course, we believe in individual rights. We believe in universal membership of the social contract. But the most efficient way to deliver universal health care, for example, is a fully marketized system. And so the debate becomes a debate about means rather than ends. And they say, yes, 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 of course, we believe in these rights. Of course, we believe that, you know, et cetera, et cetera, but we just differ on ends. And so the second half of the book is really an argument as to why the self-help individual marketized approach to solving social problems is inefficient in, in delivering the outcomes that we want, is unable to guarantee the fundamental rights that we would expect people to have under a universal social contract. It's not what you think. No, 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 it's not what you're thinking. No, 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 it's not what you think. I say no, baby, no, 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 baby, it's not what you think. I say no, baby, no, 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 baby, that's the way you swing. I say no, baby, no, 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 baby, it's not what you're thinking. It's not what you think. No, no, no. It's not what you think, baby. No, no, no. It's not what you think. It's not what you think. No, baby, no. No, 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 baby. It's not what you think. Say no, baby, no. No, 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 baby. That's the way it swings. Say no, baby, no. No, 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 baby. It's not what you think. It's not what you think. No, no, no. It's not what you think, baby. No, no, no. It's not what you think. It's not what you think. No, baby, no. No, 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 baby. It's not what you think. Say no, baby, no. No, 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 baby. That's the way it swings. Say no, baby, no. No, 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 no. It's not what you think. You're on 3CR with Annie and Rebecca on Solidarity Breakfast and we've been listening to Anthony Skew's Politics for the New Dark Age, Staying Positive Amidst Disorder. Uh, and uh, we thought we might hear what some of his ideas are about uh, the best way forward. So let's listen to his uh, wrap-up. The, the fact of the matter is that economic inequality is toxic for a liberal society at almost every level. Even if your perspective is one of sound economic management, I think even the IMF has published a ton of papers at this point showing that the more unequal your society is, the more unstable your economic growth is, the more likely growth is to end, the more likely it is to reverse, the more likely it is to to go backwards. The point is not that more equal societies grow faster, it's that they grow faster over longer periods of time because they're more stable and they're more resilient. The more important aspect of that, because economic growth is not everything, obviously, is that inequality is socially corrosive. And this, is, this of course, is the work by Wilkinson and Pickett in the spirit level and their, and their other published work. Uh, where they basically point out that because we are a social species, because we are evolved to live in these relatively egalitarian social frameworks, the existence of hierarchy is actually extremely corrosive to individual well-being. 
And it's not just corrosive to individual well-being at the lowest levels of the income scale. It's not just that being poor is costly, because of course it is. The social stress um, created by poverty is a huge contributing factor to, to the perpetuation of poverty. And obviously, um, you know, inequality uh, generates poverty. But what Wilkinson and Pickett have showed is that that social corrosion infects the whole of the social structure. That if you're a middle-class person in a uh, highly unequal society, your basic life outcomes in sort of very highly measurable ways, including life expectancy uh, sort of, and overall quality of life, are going to be lower than someone who is poorer but living in a more equal society because the existence of hierarchy itself is stressful and corrosive to individual well-being. And then there is, of course, the political aspect to all this, which we've kind of been living through the last three years, where we've seen that the, the greater that social inequality rises, the, the less political cohesion there is, the less social cohesion there is, the less social trust there is. Well, often quoted maxim that um, fascism is liberalism in decay, and we have um, definitely been witnessing that the last several years. Um, I also talk not just about material inequality, but I also talk about more abstract inequalities. Equality of opportunity is, uh, is a phrase that is widely misused, but it is an important form of equality to consider because we don't merely distribute material goods and income, we also distribute the probabilities of income. Uh, and, and when we talk about opportunity, what we're talking about is the probability of your life status improving. Uh, and uh, there's a chapter after that that talks about risk, which is the inverse of opportunity in the sense that a risk is a probability of your life circumstances um, degrading over time. And the argument that I essentially make is that it's important to have holistic social programs not only to socialise um, income and wealth and all these other material goods, but we also need to socialise opportunity and we also need to socialise risk. Uh, and the way that we do this is through universal public education systems and through universal public health care systems. In Australia in particular, we like to think that we have relatively robust social programs and certainly on many measures we do better than, than some other countries. But the reality is that, somewhat sneakily, <laughs> uh, John Howard and the, and the long conservative government essentially succeeded in creating a, a two-tiered social safety net in Australia for most essential social services. And we are largely dealing with the consequences of that politically and economically and socially today. Compared to most OECD countries, we have one of the highest rates of private education in the world. Uh, likewise, in the healthcare sector, we have one of the highest rates of private health insurance in the world. And despite the fact that overall um, we pay much less for healthcare than the United States, uh, as a percentage of income, Australians as individuals pay just as much out of pocket as, as their American cousins. We've created a stratified system, and that stratification is self reinforcing and evolves over time to, be, to become worse and worse in the absence of government action. Because when you have uh, families of, of low uh, socioeconomic background crammed into the public school system, where you have people who have high stress and low income jobs and perhaps recurrent uh, health problems crammed into the, the public health care system, of course the impression that most people get is that those systems are worse systems that cater to um, cater poorly to, to the worse off. And so we see this social segregation happening that um, middle-class parents uh, attend, or middle, send their kids to middle-class schools, 
and they visit middle-class hospitals and they get a pretty decent standard of, of, of life. But the social and economic costs of them doing that, the, the additional stratification that it creates is toxic not only for them, but for everybody below them on the social ladder as well. Uh, so those are the sort of the core dimensions of redistribution that I talk about. And then just to wrap things up, go into an argument towards the end of the book, um, sort of asking why this has happened, and basically boil it down to a problem of capital and labor. I developed this analogy where I treat the two as being equivalent in some sense. Traditionally, you know, we think easily enough of unemployed people as sort of being wasted workers. This is, this is not my language, but this is sort of the way that sort of society as a whole generates its, its, its policies, you know, that the more people that are employed, the more economic growth we have, and the more efficient the market, and that unemployed people are, are in some sense an, an inefficiency or a drag or a waste. Uh, and I don't think it would sort of upset very many people for me to say in this room uh, that sort of the, the history of the state um, under the last, for the last 200 years has basically been a process of um, capital using the state to discipline labour um, to uh, adopt extremely coercive uh, mechanisms in order to force people out of unemployment uh, and into work uh, in order to increase the efficiency of production or whatever. The analogy that I develop in the book is that, well, that's not great, but we need to apply the same lens um, to capital. And in the sense, wealth... Uh, is wasted capital. That if someone is hoarding wealth above a certain, you know, whatever arbitrary <laughs> kind of limit you can dream of, um, that, that that's capital that's not being employed productively. You know, that, you know, if, if, uh, if billionaires were foregoing their, you know, $400 million yachts, you know, that's, you know, that's a $400 million social program. That's a $400 million factory somewhere that produces goods that are cheap and affordable to people. Uh, and yet... Wealth is not treated with the same level of discipline or harshness uh, as, as unemployed labor is. And essentially, you know, I, I take aim at the idea of supply-side economics and show that not only has the state been gentle with capital, but has actively supported it uh, through a variety of mechanisms to increase the rate of profit in, in society at basically almost any cost to the level of equality in society, the sustainability of growth overall, the economic well-being of, of the individuals who live in it, and the accessibility and sustainability of social programs. Um, so I talk about um, the privatization issue, asset bubbles, you know, trade and foreign investment, and how all of these things have been deliberate policies by the state to support the interests of capital um, and uh, in so doing have only worsened the, the sort of the social cohesion and the, the domestic inequality that the liberal so uh, society needs to function. And I don't think it would surprise anybody <laughs> uh, to sort of draw the implication that the combination of these policies over the last 20 years has led to the current moment of political disorder, um, that the collapse... Um, of trust in institutions, the directionlessness uh, of, uh, of our political parties, the complete lack of trust in expertise, and quite frankly, the absolute contempt with which bureaucrats and elites hold the public, you know, their, their views of democracy generally, uh, as we know, pretty poor. To conclude, the book kind of wraps things up with sort of saying, 
only a, a strong philosophical commitment to a democratic socialist program that is focused on cooperative problem solving, radical democracy and radical equality um, offers a way out of all these issues that we can't look at it piecemeal, we can't look at it issue by issue, we can't look at it policy by policy because 10 years down the track, 30 years down the track, 40 years down the track, we're going to be dealing with different issues. But this fundamental battle between what is a human society and how do we organise ourselves? Um, do we want to be a society of equals that trust and cooperate with one another and build a resilient social structure? Or do we want to be you know, a, you know, a, a city of 5 million people living in the suburbs defending our individual castles? Um, I think is, is, is the core political question of our time. And I think having that core question under our belt and in our minds and underpinning all of our policies uh, will lead us in a stronger and better direction than the alternatives. And you're on Solidarity Breakfast. That was Anthony Skew's Politics for the New Dark Age, Staying Positive Amidst Disorder. And uh, we've got a few announcements that probably relate to uh, radical democracy. Um, (laughs) Tonight, the socialists are launching their federal campaign down at uh, Preston Town Hall at 6.30. That's kicking off there. Yeah. Uh, So we're going to have Sue Bolton, um, Jerome... What's Jerem? Jerem Small. Small, yeah. Who came uh, came down a couple of weeks ago, and um, and also I can't remember what the other uh, candidate. Yeah, the candidate oh, Ka- for Kath Ka- Larkin. Yeah, yeah. Um, a very good, u- a staunch union. Yes, uh, ITBU person. Yeah, yeah. Uh, also today, there's the Boats Not Borders fundraiser. So um, starting. 9pm at a secret location. So go on to the Sale for Justice website uh, to find out where that is. And there's a lot of, uh, yeah, awesome grassroots artists, including uh, Lady Lash, Race Rage, Phil Gorry, uh, Paul Gorry, um, and, yeah, others as well. Um, Unwaged $10, Waged $15, Solidarity $25, um, Mob Free Entry and... uh, yeah, it's uh, it's all about getting the boat to a lot menace. Of fun, yes. And uh, tomorrow, the West Papua uh, office down in Docklands is having their open day, so it's one p.m. for lunch by Dapur Sampari, and uh, they're going to have a speaker who's who'll be talking about the campaign in Australia for West Papua at the. Uh, UN General Assembly this year. So tell us the day, uh, the address. Yeah, it's eight three eight. I don't think it's on here. Oh, it's on. The, it'll be on the back. Yeah. No. Eight three eight Collins Street. I'm pretty sure. Yeah, it's in Docklands. Get, get the tram down there. Yeah, yeah. And uh, yes, I'm sure everybody by now knows that next week is uh, the Justice for Refugees Palm Sunday rally, uh, so 2pm at the State Library next Sunday.
Yeah, right. And we're on Solidarity Breakfast and we've got David Cross on the line. We're going to have a yarn with him about six moments in Kingston. It's a great idea that you've got going there. Thanks, Annie. Yes. Now tell me, uh, well, Kingston, uh, it's actually around Moorabbin, isn't it? It is, yeah. Kingston runs, it's a very big part of Melbourne. goes all the way out to the uh, Moorabbin Airport, Menchine, uh, Bentley. Um, yeah, it's a bit of a heartland of Melbourne, really, but it's a huge area. Oh, well, that gave you lots of opportunities mm. to come up with uh, the uh, historical map that you're actually drawing. It's a, it's a, a art meets history, isn't it? Yeah, well, uh, we were asked by the City of Kingston to develop a project, and I think what we were really interested in largely is the fact that in places like, or suburban areas in Melbourne, there are, over the course of history, pl- amazing things happen, and we often forget about those amazing things. So yeah. Six Moments in Kingston Town is really our attempt to six years in the period of the 70s and early 80s, which is a little bit random, perhaps, why we chose that particular period, but we selected six incidents or events that took place across a six-year period that had a really significant impact, not just within Kingston, but beyond uh, into the Victorian and Australian cultural world. So when you pick these, uh, before, we, before we go to the tantalising six yes. events <laughs> and how you actually go, are going to uh, take your audience to experience these events, because that's also a cute way of dealing with this whole uh, uh, artistic um, involvement of people. Uh, yep. How did you get the um, ideas for the uh, the six events uh, in the sense that, I mean, I know that you're saying that it's about uh, uh, effect within as well as without the district, but uh, is it about uh, how people see themselves within Moorabbin or is it something that you have found through your research? Uh, to be honest with you, it's a bit of both, but we, we did a lot of research around the history of Miranda, and it's kind of the way that these public art projects work. You, you feel like you're kind of an expert on a region you don't even move in once you've got to the end of the research process. But, I mean, what we found was the 70s and early 80s was a really remarkable period in Kingston. It was sort of when... The industry, I mean, Moorabbin's a really strong industrial area of Melbourne, but it was when um, some of the big companies had moved in and established themselves, Philip Morris Cigarettes, um, Coca-Cola Amateur. I mean, so there was a lot happening in terms of the development growth of that suburb. But Moorabbin was very much an optimistic 60s heartland suburb as well. So in terms of our research, we were amazed, actually, at at the incredible things that had happened once we started to dig below the surface. And we just found, for some reason, this period in the 70s and early 80s, really remarkable things were happening in this place. And we we really wanted to go back and tell those stories, both to the locals who may have forgotten them or or were not incredibly okay with some of those histories, but definitely as well for a broader audience. It's sort of about um, working-class people being proud of themselves, really. No doubt. It absolutely is. Um, but it's also about, yeah, celebrating their culture in a way that, um, yeah, perhaps a bit, we lose sight sometimes of the amazing things. Like, for example, 1976 is the first year that we chose and we identified what we think still is an incredibly remarkable story of the very first woman elected council representative in Moorabbin, Julie Cooper. So, in fact, in the history of this place, they had not had women representation in politics until 1976. Now, 
that is a story that we need to go back and tell again. And as it turns out, Julie Cooper went on to become mayor of Moorabbin in the early 1980s. But this issue of, of the inequitable representation uh, of women in Australian politics, again, not people, many people realise that there in fact wasn't that representation in that particular part of Australia until that period in the 70s. And that's a story we really feel is important to tell. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? People uh, think that everything's as it is now and uh, they have a, a very short memory, even down to that would have been around the same time that the first woman was reading the news. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. No, that's absolutely true. So, yeah, I think in, in that sense, we, we're really wanting to, to really grapple and, and engage and have people, locals, really, you know, enjoy and understand a history and an, of, of a very rich culture that they don't particularly have a grasp on necessarily. So that's kind of a key part of the project. What's what's the next one? The next one is a much more curious one. In 1978... Oh, good. Um, I thought you were going to... I'm glad you went to this one. This is weird. A, a young, young aviator <coughs> by the name of Fred Valentich took off from Moorabbin Airport on a Friday evening in perfect weather conditions. And then about 15, 20 minutes afterwards... Control Tower heard a message back from him to say that he was being followed by a UFO. And then about 10 to 15 minutes later, he disappeared and was never seen again. So, remarkable Zone incident um, is kind of Australia's um, you know, golden triangle. It's our Bermuda Triangle situation. A plane takes off in reasonably sound conditions for King Island, um, and it never makes it there. And so the Fred Valentich disappearance created a furore across Australia, um, and then it was a really quite extraordinary event. And to this day, there's been no evidence ever found of him or his Cessna aeroplane. Goodness gracious. There was sea in between, but... Hmm. There was definitely sea. He was going to King Island. Uh, many, many theorists, we have conspiracy theorists of the highest order. Since you drilled into this project, you find out every conspiracy theorist in the world thinks they know what happened. That's fantastic. Someone should do a podcast. Yeah, that. that's just well, too I think, good. I, th- I think there has been actually, <clears throat> I cannot tell you how much material we've come across in our research for this particular one. But the artists that are doing this project field theory have had a pretty rich time of it, and they're developing a site-based project out at the um, Moorabbin Aeronautical Museum, which is a really incredible facility. Again, for for locals who haven't been out there, it's one of the most amazing um, aviation museums in the world because you can actually get inside the planes and sit in them. Oh, wow. It's very very hands-on, and it's great bunch of community people that make that space happen. But, yeah, we've decided to kind of anchor our project out there, mm. partly because he took off from Moorabbin Airport. Um, but, yeah, it's also, that's also been another really interesting one to, to pick up on. Goodness, that sounds like the sort of thing people should take their kids to yes. during the school holidays. Um, you know, all those kids that are supposed to be so into machines and stuff like oh, that. Technology. It's a primo kids' school holidays place. So I'll do a shameless plug for them. Um, <laughs> they're a great community volunteer organisation down at Moorabbin Airport. Take your kids down school holidays, people, because it is incredibly interesting. All sorts of um, aeroplanes through Australia's history. Um, not all of them military, some of them are, you know, uh, commercial, um, incredible facility. Yeah, no no death here. Um, moving on from that, what was the next one? 
Next one is, yeah, I, well, we think these are all interesting. They're all very different. <laughs> oh, I think they're all interesting. Yeah, they are. The, um, this one, the next one's about Philip Morris Cigarette Factory and an, a history of industrial dispute that took place in the 70s, early 80s. Some of us, again, can forget that there was a lot of industrial action in that period where large corporations were seeking to garner a little bit more profit from their workers. Oh, goodness, it sounds like today. Mm. Not a lot has changed. I guess it, in, in, in that sense, there was a much stronger union engagement, particularly on a site like Philip Morris. Anyway, we're going we're gonna to go back to a particular story and incident in 79, uh, in which was about a particular young chap. I won't name him because it will give the exciting game away. But he stood up in a, in a demonstration and... Um, the cops tried to impound his car um, during this demonstration. And then he managed to, to jump in, grab the keys and throw them as far as he could, at which point he was arrested, taken before the courts. And in, in those days, sometimes the judiciary were a little bit more um, understanding of the need for these uh, strike actions and what they might mean. And the, the magistrate gave him off, gave, let him off with a little bit of a a generous warning. But this particular theatrical moment was quite an important one, we thought, in, in the industrial battles that were taking place in the 70s. And the Philip Morris site was really a key one um, in terms of industrial battles that were taking place at that time. So that particular moment is really capturing the fact that Moorabbin was a centre for industrial manufacture, but also a centre for the same union movement in attempting to achieve better wages and conditions for all workers. Yeah, right. And is that part of the uh, uh, the tent protest against homelessness by two teenage girls? It is. It's connected to that. So this is an interesting project. The artists have chosen to connect two different factors. So the tent protest, uh, again, took, took place at the same time. That was connected to a very big homestead in Moorabbin called the Grange. And the Grange was a beautiful building. I think it was built in the 19th century. And basically, by the late... 70s, early 80s. No one knew what to do with it. It was vandalised. Squatters were living in it. And two young high school girls on the, on the steps of the Moorabbin uh, Town Hall staged a protest saying that we should turn the Grange into a youth hostel, a place for youth homelessness. Great idea in the yeah. early 70s. These kids were only high school kids. Um, but they also got themselves into a bit of trouble where there was a bit of counter-protest um, and they had their tent destroyed. Um, by a bunch of yahoos, I think. So the details of that are a little bit murkier. But Steve Rail, who is our artist working on this project, is trying to link together both those stories around protest uh, and social change. Because clearly in the 70s in Moorabbin, again, we don't often think about this, but Moorabbin was a hotbed of the anti-nuclear movement. Mm. Um, and, yeah, there's a really rich set of sort of protest culture that emanates from Moorabbin at that time that we're really keen to go back and explore. And you get the prize for using that word, Yahoo. <laughs> <laughs> that was neat. I, I just want to also point out that, um, yeah, taking young people along would be really cool because you were talking about before how, yeah, maybe some people that lived through that time uh, are kind of sometimes forget about, yeah, what's what happened and, and just being able to tell that to their kids or you yeah, know, remembering right. and telling it to the next generation Absolutely. can can be that inspiring and 
yeah, and yeah, uh, and I think I think the works, the artworks themselves, are kind of framed in such a way that young people really enjoy the liveliness of how the stories are told. I mean, we're not we haven't invited six artists to come in and go, all right, tell us the didactic story of of these particular events. The artworks themselves will kind of push the envelope. They'll take it where they want to take it. There'll be some that might be even a slightly bit obscure in relationship to the particular subject area or story, but that's okay. Because we've got Michael Caton, the famous Michael Caton from the castle, narrating the <laughs> project. So he's going to tell everybody about each incident and story on the bus as we potter our way across Kingston. Um, and it means that the artists are a little bit freed up to kind of take these stories where they want to take them. But yeah, I totally agree. Young, younger people, I think, would really benefit from an ability to go back and say, oh, that's what's going on in Moorabbin. Yeah, it's a bit of a Rod Quantock sort of moment in a sense because you get on a bus, don't yeah, you? Yeah, true. Yes, but, uh, yeah, absolutely. And yep. sometimes the the realisation that, like, your parents did that, like, it can be <laughs> exactly. really like, oh, wow, I'll see them in a different light. <laughs> absolutely. There's but a couple you know, of – oh, sorry. I was just going to say, the thing so, we found so interesting about this project is that we could have done it anywhere in Melbourne. Yeah. And the same rich, complex, amazing stories and people are, are kind of, they're redolent everywhere. And that's why I think this project is, with, you know, in a way, we've just randomly selected a six-year period simply to illustrate to people that the culture and, the, you know, the really amazing breadth of culture that comes from suburban living in Australia is far greater and far less stereotypical than than people are kind of thought to, you know, the way that we shape it and believe it. Well, it, it's about living history. It's about people taking control of their history yeah. rather than having it told to them. Yes. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, which I guess is uh, where you come in and why this is art. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I think art's a brilliant means by which it, it, it draws people into a consideration of a serious set of subject matters, but it gives them all sorts of other resonances, you know, to think about. And so public art, which is really the kind of operation that we work in, we just see it as being a really useful language to, to entertain, but to be thought-provoking, and at the same time to, you know, keep drill into history in a different way. It doesn't just tell the story. It tells it with its own very particular inflection. And I guess we should tell people that uh, the reason for why this is happening at all is because there was a grant from Creative Victoria that's uh, $65,000 came from Creative Victoria from their Creative Suburbs Program grant, which you probably didn't even know existed. <laughs> and <laughs> But, I mean, you know, uh, more strengths to their arm. And... Yeah, um, right. Uh, tell us the dates and tell us the ordinary details that go with this. Okay, so you can book for this remarkable event through the City of Kingston website. There's a special website for you just to jump on and book your tickets. We have four buses running. Uh, we have four sessions every day over four days, two weekends. So four, so, four days, four buses each day. Uh, no, for, no, actually, we no. have sorry, one bus each day. Our good listeners on a Saturday morning don't actually need to know how many buses because um, as much as they're trying to get their head around this project, all you need to do, good people, is basically get online, the city of Kingston, uh, six months in Kingston Town, book yourselves a spot on the bus. The buses are running at 9.30, 11.30, 1.30 and 3.30, Saturday, Sunday, both of the last two weekends of May. Um, 
and that's the easiest way to get yourself locked in um, to get on this bus journey. The journey's about two hours, and we pick you up out the front of the Moorabbin Town Hall, and we drop you off in exactly the same spot, um, a little bit wiser and a little bit more interested in the world, we'd like to think. And it's a fantastically cheap affair, $7.50 or $10. It is. It is. I mean, how, where can you get the entertainment that cheap these days? That's right. Do you get off the bus at all? You do. Yeah. You do. Um, the um, couple of the other projects I haven't actually mentioned, um, I'll just briefly talk about the Rick Springfield project. Um, in 1981, um, Rick Springfield had a number one international hat smash hit with the song Jesse's Girl, which I'm sure both of you sing along to in the shower regularly. <laughs> and um, Rick Springfield grew up in Parkdale, which is part of our Kingston tour in a, in a street called Melrose Street. Oh, fantastic. So, so we are staging uh, a very, very grand uh, recreation of Jesse's Girl. Oh, fantastic. Hundreds of musicians oh, from great. Kingston, including tuba bands, oh. Filipino choirs. Oh, that's oh great. my God. You name it, everything. We've even got um, a, a very lovely little connection with the Australian Bulldog Club because if you actually watch the, the Jesse's Girl film clip, you'll notice that Rick Springfield is obsessed with American Bulldogs. Yeah. So, oh. you know, we have left no stone unturned in our attempt <laughs> to grapple with all these different community engagements. But I won't specifically give a game away about what happens, but needless to say, the audience is off the bus and they're having a terrifically good time uh, as we pay homage to one of Australia's great musical sons. I'm sure you're videoing this. I'm sure there's going to be a video uh, diary of this event. There'll definitely be video, indeed, there will be, yeah. And are you going to reenact the notorious head-butting incident? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, well, I mean, you know, it is interesting, again, uh, Kingston is a bit of a heartland of Australian sport, as you were mentioning, and yeah, I can safely say I was there that day when um, (laughs) head-butted Graham Carberry on the outer wing at Linton Street Football Ground back in the days when St Kilda was ripping it up down at Moorabbin. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, then again, just coming back to that idea of events and incidents that really had a kind of impact beyond that region, that was a classic version of it. I think, in a way, it, I think it changed Australian rules football, to be honest. Um, well, 20, know, 20 weeks yeah. of spe- suspension. Yeah, I mean, oh. totally. But, you know, Australian football was so incredibly violent um, mm. with one umpire in the 70s and 80s and that incident where, you know, the co- contact between a player and umpire... I mean, Phil Carmen himself is a very mercurial player in Australian history. He played for four different football clubs, managed to get offside with just about all of them. <laughs> so he, he himself is a very interesting character. But yeah, where um, the artist Larissa Koslov is definitely digging deep into that particular work, um, and she's developing a really interesting video art project. Um, around that particular incident in situ at the St Kilda Footy Club. So that's another, you know, mm. definitely another one, interesting one to, to come down and experience. This is fantastic. Absolutely fantastic. Thank you for spending time with us, Dr David Cross. You're most welcome. Thanks very much, team. Have a great day. You too. A weak solidarity, Bricky team listener, when budget day, a, a day of multi-orgasms for the Canberra Press Gallery, which knows the world starts and ends in the bowels of Parliament House. When big supremos scuttle their more lash son announced only the caring business class and hayseed and sheep shit lot can be trusted to administer the healthy economy they have created. Not helped a lot by his great support of the True Blue Aussie industry profit groups Innes Wheel the Axe, who warned against poor scene handouts 
to the undeserving because the economy was not looking all that healthy. But Scuttle then knew that just on this one occasion, Innes was wrong. And big economic guru Josh Friedem Icebergs would bring down a responsible budget. There's a lot of handouts, Josh. Are you sure it's re- responsible? Absolutely. We're hoping it will be responsible for getting our bums back on the plush seats. Uh, There seems to be a lot of deprivation down Geelong way, Josh. A lot. We're in danger of being deprived of votes. On that, given this was a budget for the period covering from now until the election, about six weeks, upon analysis, and analysis is what the week that was is famous for, most of the pork barrelling, sorry, important expenditure, won't take effect until about the next century, give or take. For instance, that fast train to Geelong, and yes, there it was in the budget, but... The money won't be available before the next two elections and won't be completed until sometime after Port Phillip Bay drowns the train line anyway. So so it's got stuff all to do with this budget. Reacting to criticism of this leger de man, Scuttle them said critics lacked an understanding of how big projects are funded. You announce it, bask in the glory, hope it works electorally, and then with a bit of luck, We'll never have to build it. Never scuttle them. Well, it has the added advantage that you can then promise it again next time. The Minister for the Environment, who doesn't believe in climate change, said the budget showed the government's commitment to the environment. And seriously, we'd have to agree. A mob called the Investor Group on Climate Change reported that if the government uses, as it plans, its Kyoto carryover credits to achieve its abatement target, credits for not quite increasing our emissions as much as we promised we would increase our emissions, in another example of taking climate change seriously, our real emission reductions will be a spectacular 16%. And yet... How's this for arrogance against a country doing its best? The the European Union and Paris Agreement bureaucrats claim this would lack environmental integrity. How can anyone suggest True Blue Aussie lacks integrity when it comes to climate change and the environment? But the EU and Paris officials are put in their place by the Minerals Profits Council of True Blue Aussie, which very sensibly pointed out... The use of Kyoto carryover credits has long been accepted. And as a totally neutral observer, would it make any difference to you? Uh, Well, yes, we have no vested interest in this matter, but nonetheless it would have the advantage that we wouldn't have to do anything. We could continue with business as usual. And don't forget, we must balance what we can do about climate change. And we are just as committed as anyone to address this issue, but must balance what we can do with the impact of that on our delicate economy. We need sensible balance. So can we afford to save the planet? Look, honestly, I don't think we can. And in another piece of slick leger to man, the government handed even more huge tax cuts to the filthy rich, posing as tax cuts for the undeserving lowest of low paid. Interesting. Like that Geelong fast rail, it's in the budget, but is conditional on the electorate returning the government. If you don't vote for us, you won't get a tax cut. Not that we suggest for one second the budget, which isn't a real budget, has anything to do with the election. 
although personally I'm getting a whopping $75 to pay my soaring power bills. Thank you, Scuttle Them. Thank you, Josh. So they've won me. I'll definitely be voting caring business class. Then Socialist Supremo and would-be Big Supremo, little Billy Shorten Ambition, promised lots of health goodies, particularly for cancer patients, cutting their out-of-pocket expenses. The biggest change since the Socialists introduced Medicare, he told us. Well, should it happen? Because it is back to the future. Because Medicare, through the Medicare levy, was designed to ensure all care was free. There would be no need for private health insurance, for instance, but mostly, thanks to the little bald-headed bloke who used to be big supremo back in those dark ages, so much of the Medicare levy for free public health care was handed to the private sector. So thanks, little Billy, for taking us back to the future. A promise to wipe out all subsidies to private health, including health insurance, would be even more appreciated. The next few weeks are going to be unbearable, so if we could afford it, listener, I'd suggest we leave the country. But proving how you can succeed in this great country, Broadie boy made good and now Turak boy gone bad, Eddie Maguire people poor, hasn't got a racist, homophobic, sexist, bodiest bone in his body. Why? Reliable sources like his good racist, homophobic, sexist, bodiest mate swear he hasn't. And every time Eddie makes a racist comment, he apologises and assures us he didn't mean to be racist because he's definitely not racist. And every time Eddie makes a homophobic comment, he apologises and assures us he didn't mean to be homophobic, because he's definitely not homophobic. And every time Eddie makes a sexist comment, he apologises and assures us he didn't mean to be sexist, because he's definitely not sexist. And every time Eddie makes a bodiest comment, he apologises and assures us he didn't mean to be bodiest, because he's definitely not bodiest. He, he just likes a good joke, a bit of a laugh with the boys and a double amputee attempting to balance her body on a walking stick while tossing a coin is the stuff of a good joke the stuff of a bit of a laugh with the boys so for goodness sake let's get off poor eddie's back and just an update on the family. We're pleased to report his brother, another Brody boy made good, the long-term member for Brody, so devoted is he to his suburban alma mater, is still representing the people of Brody from his home in Brighton. But we're told on good authority that on a clear day with the right conditions and a giant, giant periscope, you can just see Brody from Brighton. Well, he's a working-class boy at heart. He doesn't have to live with them as well. Let's hope that periscope stays up better than the latest Boeing jet, which has killed more than 300 passengers and crew. But uh, I have a slight problem. Boeing said all tests had shown the plane was as safe as the new Boeing jet. And don't forget, when the crashes occurred, US of the UN of the US of the world, big supremo Donald Trump or the poor, said Boeing was a great and proud US of corporate. I love it. So we're obviously talking about a most respectable and responsible great corporate, as safe as the new Boeing jet, but then said that between the crashes, it had been working on new software to overcome the minor problem of the nose pointing to the ground and only stopping pointing to the ground when it hit the ground. And it, it's very close to perfecting the software. As safe as working on software, can anyone spot a 
contradiction in there somewhere. And if Donald hadn't told us just how respectable and responsible this great corporate is, we might have thought a respectable and responsible corporate might have grounded the fleet until it had perfected the software designed to overcome the small problem of crashing. We finished last week quoting the aforementioned Innes Wheel the Axe, defending the inalienable right of workers not to join a union and attacking evil unions for suggesting they should pay a service fee when a union wins their improved wages and conditions. Well, this week the Reserve Bank produced figures showing the low incidence of union membership had nothing to do with that problem of slow wages growth caring employers are so concerned about. It's just that they hate paying wages, the bank said. No, no, I made that up. It's just my misplaced bias. No, the bank said, this is because a growing share of employees choose not to be union members, but continue to be covered by a union-negotiated enterprise agreement. But Innocent Co. will defend to the boardroom their right not to pay for that. So I've come up with a simple solution. Given their right not to join the union, they could also have the right to reject any extra pay and improved conditions the union they refuse to join wins for union members. It, it's simple and I'm sure Innes would agree. Freedom of choice. The Gender Solidarity of the Week Award to New South Wales Big Supremo Gladys Berejack Notgillian after becoming the first woman elected Big Supremo in New South Wales, campaigning strongly for the women's vote. Well, talk about solidarity. Her new ministry has one less woman than the previous one. 19 men and a whole five women making her state number one in the whole country for the least number of women ministers. Uh, you cut one woman out, Gladys. Did, did you think six was too many? Look, quite simply and quite modestly, I knew I was worth 10 or, no, no, 14 men, so the numbers are equal. On politics in that state, finally, former big supremo tiny a bit more for the bosses, challenged by former Olympic ski jump medalist Zali Stegel, is running around his electorate in a bus carrying the slogan, a vote for Zali Stegel is a vote for Bill Shorten. And her campaigners counted it with a, with a vote for Tony Abbott is a vote for Tony Abbott. <laughs> I like that. Good morning. Hello. Yes, hello, Don. How are you? You're. Oh, I'm, I'm just remind the listeners that they're uh, on 3CR Solidarity Breakfast, and we've got Don Sutherland on the line because it's going into a very uh, auspicious period, isn't it? We're going leading into a major rally on uh, Wednesday this coming Wednesday. Change the government, change the rules. Yes, we, we are indeed, and uh, we'll uh, have something to say about that. And But I think the big the big thing that's happening at the moment, of course, is the development, the further development of uh, uh, the struggle that's going on in Australia at the moment about what's going to happen uh, with wages and also, because of the budget, uh, the interaction of the industrial wage with the social wage. So I thought we should spend a bit of time on that. Just uh, one quick thing I want to pose, uh, just as a thought. Um, earlier this week, Kimberly Clark at its Huggies factory in Sydney, Western Sydney, um, decided to shut that factory down. 220 wow. people losing mm. their jobs and they're moving offshore. 
now, what that then I watched Morrison's response to that, which was to say that workers just had to move on from their disappointment. <laughs> uh, or words to that effect. So no possibility of government intervention of any sort to save that manufacturing entity. Uh, and th- that raises for me this whole... I, I, I actually felt hatred yeah. in me when I watched that reaction from the Prime Minister. And I had to work really hard to translate that hatred to a focus upon the idea that is at the heart and the soul of the Liberal and National Parties, and that is that working people don't count. Yeah, that's right. And I had to work very hard on that because the tendency was to personalise it. Uh, So there's a fine line, I think, between intensely disliking something or somebody and hating them I think I tripped over a little bit because it was just so despicable what the Prime Minister had to say for those workers. Mind Uh, you, mind you, it is a a stern reminder of the class warfare that we we are actually actively involved in at this moment. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. And, And, of course, the thing we should also note about it is that here's a company basically going on strike in Australia. Mm. It's a strike of capital because they're going to shift their capital out of Australia to another location in Southeast Asia, and there are no laws against that. Yeah, and uh, and also it, it underlies the actual truth, which is that all the workers in Australia and all those workers in the Southeast Asian country, which I'm assuming they're expecting to exploit outrageously, are actually our comrades. Yes, exactly. Exactly. They, and, and many of them employed or partially employed or underemployed at the point of the barrel of a gun. Yeah. So there are, there are both state-sanctioned military and police organisations that police those low wages or paramilitaries hired directly by the companies that employ them. Yeah, God, God forbid they unionise or... Pardon? God forbid they unionise. Yes, and they but they will struggle to unionise, and it will happen at some point, as it is happening through all of uh, the union movements throughout uh, uh, Asia. Incredibly brave yeah. uh, union organisers in in uh, other countries, and uh, it's one of the reasons for why in Australia people need to actually fight for their unions. Yes, absolutely. Uh, and the defence of our wages and conditions is not built on uh, creating enemies amongst workers in other countries. No, it but work like that. one of the things that came it's out in... It's a failed strategy, that one. Mm. Yeah, it is, and uh, it's just playing into the boss's hands. The other one yes. is that um, the uh, the um, budget also gave uh, doubled or increased, uh, gave the A triple uh, ABCC more money than it had ever had before. Yes, well, I didn't pick up on that, so thank you for that. Yeah, something like... uh, So here we have the extension of the penal powers of the 21st century uh, in in the current federal budget. Yeah, unbelievable, unbelievable. And and the the next thing is that they mention climate twice. Yes, yes. 
So let's uh, let's have a talk about the budget. Now, I would like to discuss it with you from the point... Looking at through the prism of the 90% of the population yeah. who are mm. either uh, fully dependent upon wages, either uh, employed full-time or part-time, or in casual situations, or are dependent upon uh, siblings or parents who who do so. So we're talking about looking at the budget through the prism of the work of the working class and to some extent through organisations that uh, directly represent workers or are associated and thinking in terms that are consistent with the perspectives of workers. Now, I think the um, uh, what the budget does is emphasise, again, the link between the industrial wage and the social wage. And the striking thing for me, both in the week or so leading up to the budget and then continuing since, has been how many of the non-party working class groups and organisations that have been making really insightful uh, analysis of quite complex issues in the budget. So sitting out there spread all over Australia are these organisations and groups, not just unions, but uh, other groups as well, uh, focusing upon the situation from the point of view of working women and beyond, focusing upon the needs of the disabled, focusing upon the needs of First Nations people who, with scarce resources, but with remarkable intelligence... Well, maybe not so remarkable. We should see it as just being part of being working class, that one's instincts and intelligence can work things out. And there are really great examples of all of that happening. Now, what they're doing is, in fact, saying that the quality of our lives is defined not just by the industrial wage, but by the interaction between the industrial wage and the social wage. Which which, which would appear to have completely bypassed the LNP government and and those people. They just don't, they don't have a clue. And I I suspect also by the majority in the Parliamentary Labor Party. Uh, So that takes us to how can that, how can that latent power potentiality be further developed? And we do get a good clue in our history. And it's, it's expressed in the concept of a genuine alternative political and economic program. Now, in the United States and also in the United Kingdom right now, there, are, there is such a thing being developed. In the United States, it's got the name called the Green New Deal. Now, now, now you're bringing this up, which is quite yeah. interesting, because I went to a thing recently where... People were talking about the Green New Deal, which was being talked about, you know, in the other parts. One, I was told at this meeting that the Greens here in Australia don't seem to have their handle on that Green New Deal, which I thought was a bit shocking. And the next thing I was told was that there was a recent meeting uh, called uh, for that horrible word, stakeholders, And a whole lot of environment people turned up to the meeting, but no union representatives came. Yes, there is a a disconnect between 
the struggle over inequality, which is mainly being led, not exclusively, but main, mainly being led by um, the better parts of the union movement on the one hand, and then the struggle over uh, the, the uh, uh, over climate change and other aspects of the ecology that we all live in. So do you want to talk uh, I, about what the Green New Deal represents? Yeah, well, I, I don't, I, the first thing I want to say about this alternative economic program is that the content of the Green New Deal is in principle really great and is applicable in Australia. But above all, we must not copy it. But but it's about it, but but what it's about is uh, focusing industry and uh, work in uh, sustainable industries, isn't it? It's looking at how taxation policy and spending policy can be done in order to do two big things: firstly, tackle inequality, and secondly, associated with that reverse climate change and give attention to other aspects of environmental destruction that are going on. Now, in Australia, we we should not copy the way in which the Green New Deal is being done by organisations of the 90% in the USA. We should rather build it out of our own experience. And what I'm trying to say is that when we look at the organisations that have been, these are the grassroots, if you like, the organisations that are the 90% or are associated with it are actually doing, they're all doing it in their silos. And some, But what they're doing often is not just saying what's wrong with the Morrison government and its budget program or what's weak, uh, what's positive and what's weak about Labor's alternative and that being put forward by the Greens, they're also defining what they want instead. But it's all happening in the silos. And so, therefore, its full strength is not being developed. And yet, in our history, we have examples. Back in 1978 or nine, uh the left of the Australian Union movement produced a little booklet called Australia Ripped Off. And in Australia Ripped That's Off... That's succinct. There, there was a detailed analysis of what was going on in the Australian economy with the destruction of manufacturing, the start of the destruction of manufacturing. And at the, at the back end of it, right at the back, there was this document that had come out of the discussions, particularly in members of the metal workers' unions at the time, um, that laid out an alternative economic program. In other words, it had come from below and the AMWU that had released Australia uh, uh, Uprooted um, uh, had captured that and put that into documentary form. So so the, um, the plan that someone put forward then or people put forward then, how, do, how would it stand up if you look back on it now? Well, I don't have it in front of me right now, but I'm happy to... Uh, create a PDF version and send it to you so you can share it with your listeners. Okay. But there are aspects of it that are entirely relevant today. Back then, of course, the awareness of what was happening with climate change was very early. It was actually being picked up by some people on the left. Well, I must say that um, I used to sit around a computer in the... uh early 80s with uh, a person whose wife was a mathematician who uh, they'd been doing um, 
uh, in the 70s, they'd already established that there was a problem with the climate and our interaction with... Yes, yes. Yeah, so, well, I mean, were... it, it's, it's old news. Yeah. Yeah, and in the 70s, there was, of course, an organisation called the Environmentalists for Full Employment. Yeah. And, that, and that's, they were, that was an Australian definition of what we, we would call these days a just transition. Mm. Uh, so th- there is history for us here, and it is really important because of what's going to happen over the next few weeks, where the temptation for people will be to, and I noticed this with even commentators on the left, saying that, you know, we can't wait for this three weeks to be over because it's going to be so terrible with, you know, the politicians arguing with each other over marginal differences in policies on various things. We shouldn't see it that way. We should see it as the start, as a new starting point for the development of a genuine and more coherent and brought together alternative economic program that captures in a fairly fulsome way the, uh, the, the demand of the 90% and all of the components, the organisational components, including unions, including women's organisations. And there is some wonderful material already there that that sort of process needs to bring together. So and what's your view about the uh, march that's, uh, marches that are being scheduled for uh, Wednesday? Well, uh, these are incredibly important and I, am, I have no doubt that in Victoria it's going to be terrific. Uh, Unfortunately, there is now a lot of confusion about April the 10th in New South Wales. And there is going to be some action there, but uh, regrettably it is reported that the Union's New South Wales is not supporting April the 10th as a day of stop work type Action oh, that's interesting because I was wondering about that because when I was having a look up, Queensland's got a quite a strong, lots of different um, places, regional places as well as uh, ones in Brisbane, uh, Perth, uh, Launceston in mm. uh, not Hobart but Launceston in Tasmania, Adelaide, Perth, uh, Melbourne, and then there's a couple of places in New South Wales regional, but also two locations in Sydney. Yes, well, in Sydney, the the tendency has drifted back to just a couple of unions who are going to do some things on April the 10th. And there is such disgust amongst some of the unions with the majority position of unions, New South Wales, that they, that is, this is the CFMMEU and the AMWU and other left unions are now saying that uh, May the 1st, which is a mm. in, in the working week, the traditional working week, is going to be the day of protest. And they're going to go ahead with that, yeah. no matter what Unions New South Wales get up to. Unions New South Wales have turned exclusively to a electorate-focused activity. And so oh, on the weekend after April the 10th, this is not unimportant, of course, but... After April the tenth, on that weekend, there is going to unions New South Wales will be uh, intensifying and enlarging the activity in key electorates, and so it's become almost exclusively a electorate, uh, an electorate parliamentary style union 
thing in New South Wales. So is this, um, does this reflect some sort of division between uh, or or uh, a sulkiness about uh, who's more important between uh, Union New South Wales and the ACTU, which is actually uh, based in Melbourne? I've asked some questions trying to get an explanation, a clear explanation, and uh, including at the Union's New South Wales um, Facebook posts, and I haven't yet received an answer, so I don't know. Uh, however, we'll say this. I'll be blunt about it. Hmm. The Union's New South Wales is still controlled by right-wing unions who are overwhelmingly very laborist. That is... They, their sense of their role is to uh, be servants to the Labor Party, the Parliamentary Labor Party. And that is dominating the, the... It's not exclusively the position of all unions in New South Wales because there are also in, unions who are genuinely, uh, genuinely pursuing uh, their priorities in a more independent way. But that's the dominant tendency in the New South Wales movement. And I think that explains this this ideology of labourism is actually a fetter upon the full development of uh, the potentials of all of the organisations of the 90% at the moment in New South Wales. Oh, that's fascinating. Yes. So we could just perhaps finish with this because we've been talking about it on and off for some time. Um, two points about the budget. Firstly, its gross assumption is that there's not going to be any recession soon. <laughs> hmm. There is going to be a recession. It's not a question of whether, it's a question of when. When, yeah. And I think, I think there is a sense in which this budget is actually concedes defeat because all of the assumptions and forecasts are designed to ensure that Labor cannot proceed towards a surplus. And that means that what the, what the Liberals are thinking is setting up a Labor government for a failure on those terms in the context that there is going to be a recession and that therefore they, can, uh, uh, they, they are then in a strong position to, to have Labor kicked out uh, at the end of its first term. Now, I'm not, I'm not yeah, sure no, 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 no. But that, work, I mean, this is what. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is like bully boys in a schoolyard. I mean, this is the stuff that uh, most Australians are actually most uh, discontented about our political class. Uh, our political class not only just represents the big end of town, they only represent themselves. Mm. Yes. Well,. The political class, I think there are tensions in the political class as well. And I know that I, I, I think the Labor response is, is, has got some positive aspects to it from the point of view of the 90%. Uh, but we need to develop something much more powerful. And so far in Australia, there has not been a success rate for the organisations of the 90% to push Labor to move to the left after it's elected. Oh, it's amazing what they think the left is. You know, acting in a humanist fashion is considered to be ultra-left. Yeah. Well, Labor will present everything it does as being humanist. And at face value, 
they can succeed on that. But in let's turn to the more material things. Will there be a genuine ongoing advance in things like the industrial wage, health, health spending, uh, public transport spending, climate change intervention, those sorts of things? Labor is adopting a very modest program and therefore the organisations of the 90% have to find a way to both not enable to campaign to push Labor into more more progressive positions, but at the same not time not open the way for the return of the Liberals. I mean, now, really, so really, the thing about it is, sorry. is that it, we should the be on a war fitting. No, but we should be on a war footing, and the war footing should be our action around climate change. And that obviously needs to, uh, for us to be able to actually uh, deal with the issues that are related to climate change, are our uh, principles as human beings. We've got to do both. Climate change and inequality are interactive. That's right. They're completely interactive. Yeah. And so, therefore, we've got to do both. That's where we come back and we can perhaps finish on this note because I'm keeping an eye on my watch for a change. Good um, on you. The, 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 the budget is based on quite ridiculous forecasts from the point of view of the government. They are ridiculous about what's going to happen uh, to the industrial wage. And we must remember that the annual wage review that focuses upon minimum wages and also the minimum rates at the various levels in our industrial awards is proceeding. And with the budget, the next step happens, and that is that all of those who have made submissions, and there are 22 organisations that have made submissions, now get an opportunity to make a supplementary submission in the light of the budget. Well, we'll have to finish there, Don. We're right at the end. We're right at the line, I'm afraid. All four an alternative economic program from below. Well, let's hope for for um, for a big turnout to the march on Wednesday yeah. and, uh, as you say, an alternative vision for Australia. Exactly, from below. From below. <laughs> Thanks very much, mate. Brilliant, thanks. Uh, well, that's the end for Solidarity Breakfast today. We uh, heard from Anthony Skews, Politics for the New Dark Age, Staying Positive Amidst Disorder. We moved on to talk about a fantastic thing called Six Moments in Kingston, a public art bus tour. You should go to kingston.com.au to look, get your tickets. And uh, we uh, heard from Kevin and we, we then went on to Don. Uh, see you at the march on uh, Wednesday, April the 10th, 10.30 outside Victoria Trades Hall if you're in Melbourne. Yeah, and stay tuned for Asia Pacific Currents. Catch you next week. And him could come the closest. No, I can feel still I do the most. I want me to put in the work and trust the process. Oh, yes, that's how we grind right now. Coffee with the coffee with the prime time flow. Time for we accumulate the kinds. I know I'm say, Jaggy me, the jaggy me, the signs like, whoa, coffee come in like a rupture. And everybody get captured. Play sleep up like a helicopter. When them see the lyrics come chucked Coffee come in like a rupture. And everybody get captured. Please, if
You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.